Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. hard not to start tonight by wishing uh, safety and health to all the people in Japan um, and all the other areas that have been affected by the earthquake and uh, tsunamis that have just been so horrific to, to witness, even from afar. And... Um, <clears throat> Also, maybe just to reflect on how so much of the suffering also is not just from the tsunami and the earthquake, but all the human creations that have been affected by the earthquake. Nuclear power plants and oil rigs and sewage refineries and so on. And, um, <clears throat> hopefully... Um, this can also be a wake-up call for all of us, for um, ways we can, we can live our lives. It's hard to watch the natural um, crisis and then also see um, how much of our human-built world has added so much to that crisis, just in terms of... Um, the kind of societies we've all built and rely on. So, um, I, I was away this, this weekend and, and um, I, I only saw newspaper reports, you know, and today for the first time I actually saw the, the images, the moving images, and uh, it's really powerful and also reminds us too how lucky we are that we can gather here tonight and every night and maybe some time we won't be able to and um, hopefully when we're here we're fully here so that we can learn the skills or as we talk about tonight the expedient means that we need um, to really serve ourselves and others and um also, all the um, suffering of non-human spheres happening, too, in Japan and elsewhere. All the animals and fields and forests and gardens. Um, so. Over the past few weeks, we've been studying the Lotus Sutra. Um, I hope that you've been reading along. Um, we've been looking at two translations of the Lotus Sutra, the Burton Watson translation and the Gene Reeves translation. And um, for this chapter, I've decided the Burton Watson translation wins up. Um, so if you have it, feel free to, to follow along. Um, some of you who, who haven't been here, um, the reason why we are studying the Lotus Sutra is partly because a lot of what we do here at Center of Gravity is 
uh, informed by Mahayana Buddhism. And yet, most of what we study here at Center of Gravity is Theravada Buddhism, is Buddhism from the early Pali Canon. So after the Buddha died, many of his teachings were put down uh, into what's called the Pali Canon. Uh, Several weeks ago, I talked about the history of that, which I I won't go into too much tonight. Um, And from there, um, after the Buddha died, there were... Uh, there was a split. So there was sort of, you could say, original Buddhism, you know, which is what Ananda heard the Buddha speak. And then there are sort of schools Buddhism, where even within 80 years of the Buddha's death, there were between 18 and 25 schools um, that had different, uh, a different emphasis, each one of them. And then Buddhism moves uh, to Afghanistan, Sri Lanka, and over eventually to China, where it becomes uh, the Tendai school, which is the major school of Mahayana Buddhism. And in Mahayana Buddhism, one of the core ideas that we've been exploring is how we do not wake up alone, that we wake up with others. And not just that we wake up and serve others, but that we put aside our individual goal of enlightenment to serve others until every person, cow, cat, collared, is saved or served. And not only that, but our process of waking up is a process that we do together. You don't just do it on your cushion. Or maybe another way of saying it is what you do on your cushion is actually affecting everyone else in this moment and also in ways you can't see. And the Lotus Sutra is using mythological and inspiring images maybe to inspire you to see your life in a different way. But the point is to see your life. And it's using your imagination to be able to do this. Um, There's a wonderful story about Werner Herzog when he was making Fitzcarraldo. And in one of the scenes, a steamship is dragged over a mountain from one river to another. And apparently during the filming of this, there were uh, dozens of people pulling a steamship with the help of some engineers over a massive hill in the middle of a rainforest. And the lead engineer apparently walked out in the middle of the scene and was leaving the set. And Werner Herzog said, you know, why are you leaving? And the engineer said, why are you pulling a steamship over a mountain? (laughs) And Herzog replied, because it's a profound metaphor. And then the engineer said, A metaphor for what? And Herzog said, I don't know. (laughs) But it's a really good metaphor. (laughs) Recounting this recently in an interview, Herzog said, I still don't know what the metaphor is for. But isn't it a really profound metaphor? The Lotus Sutra is a little bit like this. If you approach the Lotus Sutra like you want to get something out of it, just like a modern-day consumer reader reads a novel with a beginning and a middle and an end, the text will be frustrating, and I think we'll miss the heart of what's being taught in the Lotus Sutra. So I encourage you, uh, even though I've been presenting a more academic version, which is going to start to change, of the Lotus Sutra, to really just listen to these teachings with your heart and your imagination. And just let them season you as you listen. And rather than try and figure out how this is going to benefit you, just feel the text. And I don't know about you, I know a couple of you have mentioned this, but I've left the last few weeks really joyful. The class has ended, and I just feel happy. And I don't use that word very much. But I, I mean, the next day I wake up depressed as usual, but that evening after, after the, the, the evening together, I've been feeling really, really good. <clears throat>
So early Buddhism is called Theravada Buddhism. Uh, eventually, scholars called it Hinayana Buddhism. Uh, yana is a vehicle. So Hinayana means one, like, original vehicle, one vehicle. And Mahayana means great vehicle. And usually, uh, we interpret this great vehicle as, like, better than. But one way of understanding this is that uh, the small vehicle can only carry one person. And the Mahayana, the great vehicle, can carry a lot of people. It's like this in practice when you think about a road. Uh, usually, if you're like in the rainforest, for example, there's a path that like only one person can... Portages are like this, right? Except for Algonquin Park. But everywhere else, a portage, one person goes ahead... And you know you file sing, you know single file all the way down through the portage, and eventually when a road gets built up, it gets wider, and then you get lanes, you know, and then those lanes are that's kind of like, you know, uh, schools Buddhism, is you have these lanes and there's a kind of a path you can follow, and if you take a wrong turn, somebody will tell you oh. Don't turn there. Come back onto the path. And you can feel when you're not on the path. You're in scrub and mud and swamp and so on. And um, if you take the road and you line it with diamonds, have you ever seen this? We have highways like this where you put diamonds down. And then you can go a lot faster because it's paved with diamonds. And uh, the point of the diamond lane is that you can go faster because you carry passengers. So this is like Mahayana Buddhism. It's the diamond lane, right? And it's like practicing with Sangha, that here we are together and we do it together and so it's more aerodynamic. We bring people along and it helps us wake up. <clears throat> so the first sutra in uh, the Mahayana school is the Prajnaparamita Heart Sutra which the precepts course we're, we're chanting all the time. Um, some of you, if you followed the Dalai Lama's response to the um, uh, tsunami, uh, he said two things about the tsunami right after it happened. The first thing is he congratulated the Japanese government on such good preparedness and how many lives that saved. And the second thing is he recommended to everybody who knows the Heart Sutra, to chant it. And that he was going to have his monks chant the Heart Sutra on Friday night 100,000 times. So, this is a powerful text. And last year we studied this text in depth. Um, if you missed that, we'll do it again this year for sure. The next um, sutra in the... Um, <clears throat> um, uh, Mahayana framework is called the Collected Jewels. Then comes the Avatamsaka Sutra, which is the one I've been talking about the last few weeks of the, the, the image at the beginning with the parasol of mirrors to talk about interdependence. Um, then Vimalakirti Sutra, which is the story of Vimalakirti and his experience practicing. It's kind of the first sutra that's uh, first person and also is kind of like heavy artillery against monastic practice. Uh, it's the beginning of an era of challenging um, the kind of conservative practice of the Dharma. <clears throat> and then last is the Lotus Sutra. And um, the Lotus Sutra, it should also be noted, uh, was created many, many, by many, many authors. At the same time, in China that in India, the Ramayana and the Mahabharata are being created. So I think that's not a small detail. So in India, the kind of sutra style of teaching changes, and it more becomes a practice for the people, teachings for the people, and the sutras are dramatized. They become like theater. And if you've ever studied the Mahabharata, some of you may have, uh, or the Ramayana, they're like drama, pieces of drama. And it's interesting because in the Mahayana literature, the Lotus Sutra is like this. And it's kind of created at the same time as these other texts. 
<clears throat> I want to say more, but I don't want to go too far down a, an academic route. Okay, so chapter 2 is called Expedient Means. The word in Sanskrit is upaya, which many of you have heard. Um, the term upaya comes from this chapter in the Lotus Sutra and does not precede it. The idea is, in early Buddhism, especially Buddhism focused on ethics and meditation, the idea of action gets refined to a teaching on intention. The idea being that when you really look deeply into action from a place of non-attachment, we see that when you take an action, you can't control the result. Are there any parents in here? Okay. You do your best, but you cannot control the outcome. So the word karma over time has more to do in early Buddhism with intention rather than action and the result of action. Because what we can control in our actions is our intention. From the perspective of Mahayana Buddhism, intention is just not enough. That our actions have to matter. Otherwise, they're not expedient, appropriate, skillful means. And what's true in one situation is never true in another situation in the same way. So yes, we need to focus on our intentions, but our actions have to make a difference. Because our practice is motivated by the difference that our actions make. Does this make sense? A little bit? So here's what happens. The, the text opens up with the Buddha still in samadhi. Do you remember from last week? So the Buddha is in samadhi. So he's in, in, in really deep concentration. And he's not just in meditation. He's showing samadhi. Do you remember how he showed samadhi? A beam of light comes from the center of his eyes, lights up 18,000 worlds. Um, everybody can see each other's mind. A story gets told by Maitreya and Manjushri next to the Buddha while he's in deep samadhi. The earth uh, trembles six different ways and flowers rain from the sky. <laughs> How can you forget? <laughs> yeah. So the Buddha is showing samadhi. And the way we interpreted this beam of light was in two ways. One is social media. This is how the Buddha told everybody that he is in samadhi. And secondly, um, the act of a Buddha is to light up every corner of the universe. And when everything's lit up, we can see each other's mind. And actually, this sounds like a supernatural power, but those of you who practice and participate in community... Imagine if the mind of all of us was so clear that we could read each other's mind. You'd really have to practice, right? Well, that actually starts to happen. Your mind becomes clear, and you can see the quality of other minds and other hearts. And at first, this is just a kind of intuition. In the same way that when you study chiropractic, you start to see other people's spines. You just watch them walk and you can kind of get a sense of what's going on. Well, it's the same in meditation. You get a sense of how your own mind works and you start to see it more clearly in others. And so everything's lit up. This would be a good... Imagine this as a motivation for practice. It's like everyone in here already knows what you're thinking. So it would motivate you, wouldn't it? <laughs> to, to have clarity of mind. Okay. So the Buddha comes out of Samadhi at the beginning of chapter 2, and he turns to Shariputra. Now this is kind of a bit strange, 
because in the last chapter, Manjushri and Maitreya are sitting beside the Buddha having this conversation, do you remember? And the Buddha comes out of samadhi and doesn't address them. He turns the other way and addresses Shariputra. Now, for those of you who have studied Mahayana literature, starting in the Heart Sutra, you know, Shariputra, he's like the butt of all the jokes. Because Shariputra is the person who mastered the Vinaya and mastered the Sutras. In other words, he's really clever. And he understands. But he doesn't get it. He understands, but he still doesn't get it. He knows, but he doesn't know. So, one reason for the Buddha turning to him is a political reason. Some say that this part of the text was written to try and bring the different schools together. Another reason is that the Buddha is addressing somebody who has mastered the teachings intellectually, but isn't awake yet. That's what I said about the heart, the, the Lotus Sutra. Like, it, it's not an intellectual exercise. It's a ritual we're doing of being worked on from the side of the Lotus Sutra. And then Shariputra says, can you teach now the Lotus Sutra? And the Buddha says, no, I can't teach the Lotus Sutra because there are people here in the audience. Remember, there's hundreds of thousands of people right here who are listening, who have a firm belief that they know the teaching. In other words, they're a bit arrogant. And if I start teaching, they won't really be able to hear. And this would be frustrating for me. So Shariputra asks how many times? Three. Three times. And finally the Buddha says, okay, uh, I'll teach uh, the, the Lotus Sutra. <clears throat> Just as he's about to start teaching the Lotus Sutra, 5,000 monks stand up and leave. <laughs> And the Buddha finds this a relief, that those who heard him say this to Shariputra were arrogant, and they get up and leave. And I, I don't know if I said this last week, but I love this part because it makes me feel better, <laughs> like as the person who's at the front of the room so much. There's always a couple people who just are unhappy, and they leave, you know. So now I can feel a little better. Because 5,000 people have never left a talk. <laughs> I'm also no Buddha. So. <clears throat> okay, so a few notes about this. <clears throat> First of all, there are different ways of teaching, and the Buddha says he's going to teach using expedient means. Upaya, skillful means. Okay. Traditionally, there are different ways of teaching the Dharma. One is with a sutra, which is where we get the English word suture, which are complex philosophical ideas refined, stitched together, and taught, which usually is prose form. Then there is a gaya, which is a verse, Jataka, some of you know the Jataka tales, which are stories of past lives or previous experiences. <clears throat> Adbuta, which are stories about miracles, nidana, stories about uh, causes, conditions, and effects. Uh, Opamya, parables, itivrataka, quotes, and upadesha, dialogue. For those of you in the Hindu tradition, there are also karikas, which are um, philosophical texts, um, like the Spanda Karika. And there are gitas, like, which are songs, like the Bhagavad Gita is a song. <clears throat> this sounds a little academic, doesn't it? But actually, the Buddha names this, that there are these different ways to teach. This is his teaching on Upaya, because there are different kinds of people. 
And people need to hear the teaching at their level. Or they won't understand. So within this paragraph, he's also saying, if there's arrogance, nothing can reach them. But when somebody is ready to learn, they need skillful means. Now, any of you who think of yourselves as a bodhisattva, somebody who's in the world to serve, you need to dress your wisdom in a a kind of clothing that is um, digestible. Because the core of skillfulness is making sure that your actions make a difference. So if you're teaching teachings or offering service to someone in a way that they don't need. Like, for example, it's really interesting scanning the blogs. How there are these religious blogs that talk about how God created this earthquake. You know, And for some people, maybe there is some meaning in that. But at a time post-tsunami, what people need is not an explanation about how this happened, but blankets and food and places to sleep. So this is skillful means. Somebody asked, how come on Tuesday nights we don't chant as much as usual? We used to chant a lot more. So now we chant more in smaller groups and in more formal settings like workshops and retreats. Because on Tuesday night, if we did a lot of chanting here or a lot of bowing, a lot of new people coming here would never come back again because it would look like maybe the religion that they ran away from, you know. Maybe for some people they'd be into it, and that's great. So there has to be a balance between the form and access to the form. And also, when you look at a Buddha in any culture, the Buddha looks like the people in that culture. We don't have a Buddha yet that looks Canadian. Maybe some of you who are sculptors or painters can maybe work on a Buddha. That's Canadian. A Canadian-looking Buddha. I don't even know what that would look like. What does a Canadian look like? He'd be holding a beer. (laughs) Budweiser Buddha. Is Budweiser... No, that's not Canadian. And upaya is not just words. It's also silence. Knowing when to speak, knowing when to offer service, knowing when to use your body, and also knowing how to be still. Knowing when to be quiet. And silence, in this understanding, is not really silence. It's not being quiet, it's being skillful. There are different kinds of silence. There's silence where there's nothing to say, and then there's also silence where it's unskillful, where you keep silent, even though there is something that should be said. And of course, for those of us who meditate, silence is not really silent either. Robert Bringhurst this past weekend described silence as like a bell ringing. And also silence has uh, an edge. You only know that there's silence because there are sounds. Just like you can only read type on a page because there's white underneath it, around it, between it. You only know one word is separate from another word because there's a space between them. 
And so also being skillful is not just talking. It's also being quiet. And action is not just doing something. Socially engaged dharma is not just social activity. It's also knowing how to be still. Shariputra, the Buddha says, when the age is impure and times are chaotic, then the habits of living beings are grave. Beings are greedy and jealous, and they put down roots that are not good. Because of this, the Buddhas, using skillful means, apply distinctions to the one Buddha vehicle and preach it as though it were three. In other words, he's saying, all these different schools, these three major schools of Buddhism, that's just been a skillful means in order to get people in the door. I had to teach you everything in the Pali Canon just to get you to this faith. And this is why some scholars say, that the Buddha really always wanted to preach the Lotus Sutra, but he had to wait to teach all these other schools because people weren't ready to hear what he really wanted to share, which is what it's like to be awake. And what it's like to be awake is to be a bodhisattva. And then he goes on to say, and that's why I taught Nirvana. Nirvana was a skillful means to create Arhats and Shravakas and Pratyaka Buddhas. A Shravaka is uh, somebody who hears the teaching, who's a disciple of the Buddha, and a Pratyaka Buddha is somebody who wakes up without any teaching. They just do it on their own. They figure it out. They're not here right now. <laughs> and so he says, I had to teach Nirvana, listen to this, I had to teach nirvana just to, as a skillful means to get people in the door. So he's downplaying nirvana. This is the beginning of the nirvana is samsara teaching. So one skillful means is to set up this idea of nirvana. But actually, I only did that to split apart the core of the teaching as a skillful means. It's a good twist here. then also here's another twist is you know in early Buddhism the Buddha talked a lot about not creating statues of himself you know and the practice really not being about faith or devotion right so listen to his teaching now After I pass into extinction, make offerings to the relics. Raise 10,000 or a million towers. Use gold, silver, crystal, seashell, carnelian, lapis lazuli, pearls, and purify everything as you erect the towers. Raise up stone mortuary temples made of sandalwood, hovinia, or other kinds of timber, brick, tile, clay, or earth. Put them in the middle of fields. Or even if little boys are at play and they collect some sand to make a little tower, then those little boys have attained the Buddha way. Even if little boys in play use a piece of grass or wood or a brush or even a small fingernail to draw the image of a Buddha that person, bit by bit, will be endowed with a mind of great compassion. If people who are confused and have distracted minds enter one of these towers or look at one of these Buddha images, they also attain the way. Isn't this strange? Yeah. 
In other words, you should have faith. You should have devotion. The Lotus Sutra is not offering a creation story, an idea of an omnipotent God, or a secure life when you die. And yet, the core of your practice should be devotion to the bodhisattva ideal of serving others. How many of us have that kind of commitment? To really organize our lives to skillfully serve others. Not just through good intentions, but through acts. How many of us? This is like an opportunity to... You don't have to put up your hand or something. (laughs) But really, I think so many of us have spent a lot of time studying early Buddhism. And we have really downplayed this notion of faith, of love, of devotion. And here, in this really important Mahayana text, the Buddha is saying... um, the heart of the practice is devotion, is faith. The last thing I'll mention about this chapter is then the Buddha says, the reason why people don't understand it is because to understand the Dharma, there has to be a Buddha and a Buddha. I love this. There has to be a Buddha and a Buddha. So remember, the Buddha in the Lotus Sutra is no longer a person who lived in historical India. The Buddha is a principle of awakening. And you can only understand the Dharma if there's a Buddha and a Buddha. Did you know that you're a Buddha? Exactly. So the sutra is saying that's the trouble. You haven't had faith that you you're a Buddha. Carmen, did you know that you're a Buddha? Did you not just say that you were not a Buddha? Uh, only the Dharma can be recognized between a Buddha and a Buddha. You see, most of us we're relating to each other like I'm a person and you're a person. And I'm like the person, person in me. Like, I know who I am. Don't mess with me. I sit there every week. You know, don't take my spot. (laughs) So it's like the person is always relating to the person. And here the Lotus Sutra is saying, but you can't get the Dharma with the person and the person. There has to be a Buddha and a Buddha. In other words, can you also recognize the Buddha and the Buddha. So Dogen, who uh, most of you know is kind of an obsession, (laughs) he wrote in the Shobogenzo a whole fascicle on this line in the Lotus Sutra. And this will be the last thing I, I share with you. Here's what Dogen says. The Dharma the way things are, can't be known by a person. For this reason, since old times, no ordinary person has ever realized the Dharma. No practitioner of any vehicle has mastered the Dharma. It is said only a Buddha and a Buddha can completely master it. This is my favorite line. When you realize the Dharma, you do not think, ah, this is a realization exactly as I expected. Could you imagine this? You wake up and you go, oh, just what I thought. (laughs) Even if you think so, realization always is different than your expectation. Realization is not like your conception of it. 
right? The Lotus Sutra is trying to use your imagination to get you out of stages and links and causation and what I was calling blue-collar Buddhism, you know, roll up your sleeve, get rid of the defilements, and it's right there, you know. It, you just have to work at it. Accordingly, realization can't take place as previously conceived. When you realize the Dharma, you do not consider how the realization came about. What you think before realization is never a help for realization. <laughs> Past thoughts in themselves were always realization. Past thoughts, everything you had thought of in itself was realization. <laughs> <laughs> But since you were seeking elsewhere, the thoughts you said to yourself were not realization. However, it's worth noting that what you think one way or another is not a help for realization. I was going to photocopy this tonight and and give it all to you, but uh, next week. So only a Buddha and a Buddha means that everything that you think of as me and mine is always getting in the way. And yet the gate is always right here. And Dogen is taking a step further saying, and not only that, you keep thinking that realization is separate from your thoughts. Maybe you are trying to master your mind to get rid of your thinking. That if you don't have a thought, that will be realization. But all those thoughts you had in the past, that getting rid of your thoughts would take you to realization, miss the fact that all those thoughts were the gate to realization, or maybe realization itself. Language is also realization. It's silence speaking. It's the bell. It's the ringing. And yet, you think that thoughts are something to get over, or something that covers up, or something that just signifies reality. But Dogen is saying, but thoughts are also human reality. And this can also wake you up. But if you use thoughts like a person uses thoughts, then you'll miss it. <laughs> now, this could be really simple if you just said, the Buddha is not a person. But it's something more profound than that. It's that it's between Buddhas that the awakening happens. It's between Buddhas that language happens. We speak because we love our mother. We learn to speak so we can communicate with our mom, with our caregiver, with our dad. And that impulse to learn language so fast, to love our parents, is awakening, is the Dharma between a Buddha and a Buddha. And then when you're older, you think, that's my mom. And then you're not awake anymore because you've turned this person into a box. And then if you're a meditator, you go through a phase where you make language the enemy of your practice. And you probably don't get along with your mom in that phase until you love language again and use words, and also know how to use silence, and the air and water, and so on. It's like in walking meditation, you know. First time I ever learned walking meditation, the only instruction was, don't move the air. When you walk, 
try to walk without moving the air. So these are all skillful means. To conclude, skillful means happens between two people. It's relational. Okay? So many of us would think skillful means, okay, I have to do something. What are the means? What's skillful? But it happens between people, just like Kuan Yin. Right? Kuan Yin practices skillful means with her vase. She collects her tears, which are salt water, and she pours them back into the ocean. She's not collecting her tears. She's collecting tears. Oceans and oceans of tears. Not just spatially, but also temporally. Everyone who has ever cried, everybody who will ever cry, when you're a person, crying happens to you. And grief is really painful. And when you're a Buddha, crying happens to you and grief is really painful, except the crying flows through because it's not happening to you. It's every human tear and every human that would cry in that situation. You lose somebody close to you, that's, that's a human string that gets cut. And you, cr- you cry, and you should cry. And yet, somehow, you also know that anybody would cry. And Kuan Yin's skillful means is just standing there with her... She's not actually standing. If you look closely, she's riding a wave. She's barely standing. To support you. To show you. And... You should have faith that awakening can happen between two, not just one. Interbeing, Sangha. Any thoughts or questions before we finish? Tonight's kind of the last night of me sort of like spreading the Lotus Sutra out, and then we're going to start having. I've got some exercises and things planned. I, I don't like to say that because then some people don't come. <laughs> <laughs> but more discussion planned. So any comments or questions uh, about this? I know we've covered quite a lot, but at least we got into the second chapter. <clears throat> Harmon? I hear you say, don't try to be a Buddha. Uh-huh. And now I'm confused. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. After the silent retreats. Uh-huh. And we go home and your advice is to say, don't try to be a Buddha. Yeah. And so I'm taking away what you're saying today. Yeah. And am I hearing you say that Buddha is a metaphor today? Uh-huh. Yeah? Um, so, in, in, you know, in, after the Buddha died, there were a lot of arhats, which are fully awakened people. And somehow, people started to realize that those fully awakened people were not so perfect and actually, they had a lot of trouble with money. That, that's what the first councils actually were about, is how money was being handled. And because um, this was in cities, right? First cities on earth. <clears throat> and um, so one of the teachings in Mahayana is to take this notion of the Buddha as a person that's perfect and to raise it up so high that it lets you be human. So the goal of practice is no longer to become a Buddha, it's to become a Bodhisattva. It's to live in a way that serves others. And the only reason why a Buddha comes into existence is to awaken Bodhisattvas. 
so that you don't have to worry about becoming a Buddha. You just have to work on the Bodhisattva piece. And the work of a Bodhisattva is to take care of your craving, is to realize that your cravings are infinite, and is to serve others. Really to serve others. And to serve others also means serving yourself. Because you can't take care of it. But if you're trying to be a Buddha, it could feed a little bit into perfectionism. I need to become a Buddha. And then there's like a me and a Buddha. And like, I need to be that. It's like the joke Roshi told last week about, two weeks ago, about, um, how does it go, the other shore joke? Do you remember that? Guy calls it to another guy who's on the other side of the river. He said, How do I get to the other shore? And the guy says, You're on the other shore. (laughs) 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 Yeah, so the the idea is, and we're going to, this is what we're going to talk about next week is like, how to have tools. How to have a lot of tools for the right work. Because right now we're here on Tuesday night. And your health is really good. And for most of us, you know, we're here. There's a cough, you know. But like one night you won't be here. And our sangha is really young. And we haven't buried anybody. Maybe one person. But one day... If we're all really in this, we're going to bury each other. And you're going to need tools for that. Shovel, fire, (laughs) knowing how to be with grief. And um, so maybe instead of thinking about becoming a Buddha, we recognize we already are a Buddha, and we express it as a bodhisattva as a being who's trying to work with others. Instead of like looking at the world as this kind of like clunky thing with like these mass heavy objects everywhere that we're trying to move around. Like sometimes they're called people and you're like moving them to get your spot to move this other person so you can be in this spot. And it's all so heavy and kind of rough, you know. And we don't live like between Buddhas. And um, maybe this is where faith comes from. I don't know. Somebody else. Good question, Carmen. Comment, question. Oh, yeah. Um, I was struck by, I guess, the Dogen comment being that everything that you thought before um, is of no help, I guess, to um, yeah. to realization, but it already is a realization. It seems connected to what you're saying here, but it, it also seems a little discouraging in terms of uh, practicing anything or even getting skillful means. It seems as though all of those means then are actually not going to be skillful as regards what you actually end up realizing. Uh-huh. Or another way of saying is you don't realize anything. Mm. Like the you that's thinking that cannot realize anything, really. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> that part of you that gives everything meaning, that even gives words meaning, you wake up with words. You wake up with birds. Just like you can't go into yourself to find yourself. Like birds don't go into themselves to find... Or words. Imagine if like words could Google themselves. What do I mean? <laughs> you know? It's like there's the reader and the word and the culture and your body and your gender and your age and your experience and then that means something. 
It all happens together. But when you stand apart, oh, this means that, and I'm going to put it over here. and Just like you don't want to read the Lotus Sutra so much, like this thing that's going to give you something. Anyways, we can talk more about that. But it's a, it's a good question. Who, who wakes up anyways? Um, so what I'm understanding you're saying is that once you just, you... It's not me saying anything. Oh. It's just... <laughs> but I hear someone saying. <laughs> 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 so once you, um, in our lives, if we, once we create separation, then, um, <clears throat> like with, by defining things, as separate and making them objective, the sort of the essence is lost because they're objectified and they're out there rather than just being being with it and not making it like special or something. Just, just is that is that sort of the whole gist of what you're saying? That everything that the the concept about the Buddha. Let's see. You know, investigate this in your life and, and see. You know, it's the same way where Dogen, on the one hand, is saying that, and he's also saying, but hey, everything that you've reified, every one of those words you've ever thought, that's also awakening. And you missed it when you were thinking that that wasn't. when you thought that that was really your mother. Everything that exists is like on loan from what doesn't exist. Just like your breath is in your lungs, but you, it's not owned by anything. And yet the lungs only exist because of this borrowed air. And um, sounds all interconnected. It does sound that way, doesn't it? Basically, it's saying you, you, you will you will wake up to the way things are if you own nothing. And then you can have stuff, like words, but you just don't own them. Just like you can take your breath and you can do something with it. And you can take your body and you can do something with it. And you can take your words and you can do something with them. And yet, own nothing. And um, this is a valuable way to live. Um, and it doesn't mean own nothing. It means own no thing. Okay. That's a good spot to end. <laughs> Let's finish by chanting. Life and death are of supreme importance. Life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Let us awaken. Let us awaken. 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 Do not squander your life. Do not squander your life. May all beings in Japan find happiness. May all beings in Japan find happiness. May all beings in Japan find health. May all beings in Japan find safety and freedom from danger. May all beings in Japan find safety and freedom from danger. 
May all beings in Japan find freedom from habit. May all beings in Japan find freedom from habit. May all beings everywhere find freedom from suffering. May all beings everywhere find freedom from suffering. So thank you very much. Have a nice night. Please don't forget the interdependence box or Marcus Boone's talk at this coming Thursday night here, 6.30. <clears throat> and lastly, um, I'm going to start to lecture a little less on the Lotus Sutra, um, but that requires that you're also reading the text as we go along. So uh, please pick up a translation and... Um, Come with it. Good night.